0: Well, we are still in the gospel of Mark, and we've been going through Mark in, uh, for almost a year and a half at this point, picking it up, putting it back down, and we're currently in what we're calling the third part of Mark's gospel. And at this point, uh, the scenery has changed. Most of Mark is the lead up to Jesus entering Jerusalem. It takes uh, 10 chapters to do this. And then the remaining uh, six chapters have to do with Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And so now he's in Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. And now the passage at hand is a little bit out of the ordinary. Jesus curses a fig tree. It withers, it dies. And then he heads to the temple and he flips over some tables. Uh, This doesn't seem to be the Jesus that we've become accustomed to over the past uh, 11 chapters. And so it's no wonder that people have looked at this and said, who is this man? And this is the driving question of Mark's gospel. Mark wants us to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus? And what does this passage then tell us about who Jesus is? Uh, it depends on who you ask. Uh, Bertrand Russell, he's a famous uh, philosopher and atheist, and he accuses Jesus of having vindictive fury uh, toward an innocent uh, tree, and he said this of the passage: I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Pretty harsh accusation, but Christian scholars have struggled with this passage too. The late T. W. Manson said, "It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in service of ill temper." Was Jesus just another ordinary, average person in service to his ill temper, like many of us? You see, like everything in the Gospel of Mark, there is more to the, sur- uh, the story than what's happening just in the surface of the text. This part of Mark, it starts with a fig tree. It moves to the temple. And it ends at the fig tree again. This is called a sandwich. Mark does this all the time. It's a delicious sandwich, a fig temple fig sandwich. The center is the key ingredient. The temple is what will help us make sense of what's going on with the fig tree. And while what Jesus does in this passage does seem a little bit out of the ordinary, when we dig into it, it actually reveals something profoundly breathtaking about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So there's three images we're going to explore this morning. Figs, the temple, and moving mountains. And there's one big idea that ties these three images together. It's this. Jesus moves mountains for us to be with God. Jesus moves mountains for us to be with God. So open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And our passage It's on uh, page 723 of the church Bibles that we hand out on the way in. And if you don't have a Bible, everything will be on the screen. Uh, Chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So our first image is figs. Uh, It appears that Jesus is somewhere between hungry and hangry, uh, leaning towards the hangry side. He sees a fig tree. It's out of season. There's no fruit. And so he says, may no one ever eat from you again. What is going on? I'm going to propose that Russell and Manson miss the point. This isn't a misuse of miraculous power. Jesus isn't just taking his anger out on a poor, innocent tree. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, tells parables. And more often than not, when he tells a parable, it's with words. But sometimes it's with actions. And this is consistent with the prophets of Israel. They'll often take actions as a a parable. Uh, Think about Isaiah. He wandered naked for three years. It was a parable. It was a sign. That's not my calling. Jeremiah, he wore an ox uh, yoke for for an extended period of time as a sign. Jesus, he curses a fig tree. It's a sign. It's a parable. And there's this great tension at play in this story. I love it. Jesus has just come from where, class? Where did Jesus just come from? Bethany. Okay, and what does Bethany mean? Bonus points. House of figs, great name for your daughter. Jesus has not come far from the house of figs, and yet he can't find a fig. Can you imagine if you went to Idaho and they said, sorry, no potatoes? you know, Or if you went to Florida and they said, sorry, no oranges? Or if you went to Jamaica and they said, sorry, no bobsleds? <laughs> like, this wouldn't just be disappointing, but... Confounding. How could you be out of potatoes? How could you be out of oranges? Haven't you seen cool runnings? Jesus, he's left the house of figs. He's drawing closer to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, and the place where God was thought to dwell in a special way. Why is he worried about figs? On the one hand, we can understand his disappointment. Figs are delicious. But that's not all they are, at least to the Hebrew mind. Figs symbolized Abundance and blessing and living in the fullness of God's promises to his people. To live under one's uh, vine and fig tree for the Hebrews meant to enjoy ideal circumstances with God. But when things aren't going well between God and his people, when circumstances aren't ideal, when God's people are turning away from him, what does God do? He goes after the figs. When Israel acts faithlessly, Jeremiah says, your enemies shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Or Hosea, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Joel, a nation has come up against my land. It's laid waste and splintered my fig tree. See, fig trees and figs are full of symbolic meaning in the scriptures. They can be a sign of God's abundance and blessing, but they can also be a sign of judgment. And so location matters here. Jesus leaves Bethany. He's approaching Jerusalem. And what does he do? He curses a fig tree. It's a sign of judgment, not of abundance. But judgment on what? The fig tree? No. No. Where's Jesus heading? The temple. Which brings us to our second image this morning, the temple. If you're on the outskirts of Bethany, you should be able to find figs. Uh, If you're in Idaho, you should find potatoes. If, If you're in Florida, you should find oranges. If you're an Orthodox Jew heading to ancient Jerusalem, you're going to the temple. It is the center of the city. But why? What are you going to find there? Maybe the question is better phrased, who are you going to find? You see, the temple was built uh, for God to dwell in. It was thought that God dwelt in his temple in a special way. Heaven intersected with earth in the temple. This was where God was to be found. So the fig tree is a foreshadowing. It is a dark cloud saying, not all is well with the temple. Because guess what? Heaven has kissed earth in a new way. Where is God to be found? not in the temple of brick and stone. God is standing in the dirt of the earth in the person of Jesus outside of the temple. And when God himself comes to the temple that bears his name, which was made for his presence, what will he discover? Well, look at verses 15 and 16. They came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, before we get into the fun of flipping over tables, we have to talk about the temple. Because it's not like Jesus walked into a Denny, uh, Denny's and shut it down for health cold violations. You know, that we might get, hair nets in the pancakes, whatever. But here, Jesus is shutting down the temple. It is hard to understand how offensive and what a big deal this would have been. As Roger mentioned in his sermon last week, there was always a little bit of irony when it came to the temple in Jerusalem. Because you went there to meet God, but there was also many barriers and walls. You could come close, but not too close. And the leaders of Israel at that time devoted a lot of time, money, resources, and energy into keeping these barriers intact. So have you ever wondered, what would it be like to enter into this ancient temple? Well, imagine walking into a massive arena like BC Place, except the venue is three times the size. And there's people everywhere. It's bustling, it's busy. And if you're a non-Jewish person, which I'm assuming is everyone or most of the people in this room, a foreigner or a visitor, you had to stay in the outer courts. You could stay in the outer court of the Gentiles, that was as close as you could go. And there, there were vendors and money changers and animals, and it was full of noise and energy and diversity, but you could proceed no further. Limited access. Now, if you were a Jewish woman, you could go into the sanctuary. Uh, can we go back to that last image? Go into the sanctuary, but only into the court of the women. So you could get closer, but not too close. Limited access. Limited access. If you were a Jewish man, you could proceed a bit closer uh, to the holy place, but still limited access. If you were a priest or a Levite, you had the privilege of venturing into the holy place, but only the high priest, one person, could enter through the massive curtain and enter the holy of holies, the place God was thought to dwell most intimately. But even the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the festival when all the sins of Israel were wiped clean. (coughs) And guess what? That day is coming up in a week in Jesus' narrative. And on this day, this one day, the high priest comes into the presence of God to atone for all the nations. And just as a, a fun detail, they would tie a rope around the high priest's waist when he went into the Holy of Holies, because it was never safe to enter the presence of a holy God. And in case God struck him down, they could pull him out instead of having to risk going into that holy space. Which was why the temple had so many walls and barriers and restrictions. It was an attempt to mediate the presence of a holy God in the midst of a broken and messy people. But let's step back out into the court that most of us would have only been allowed to access. The court of the Gentiles. Standing in this court, we would see a massive wall separating us from the inner sanctuary. We're kept at least 100 meters away from the temple itself. And th- periodically along the wall are signs written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. And this is what they said. No foreigner may enter within the railing enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. What a welcome. Hey, welcome to St. Peter's. If you're a guest here, stay in the lobby. Otherwise, you're going to die. The temple in Jesus' time had especially been designed to keep foreigners and outsiders away from the presence of God. They could enter, but only the most outer courts. But there was no access to God's presence. God's presence was for God's people, and forgiveness was reserved only for God's people too. So Jesus, he steps into this temple. He sees these signs. He sees all sorts of businesses, exchanges, the buying of sacrificial animals, but also corrupt practices, extortions, overcharging for animals, selling animals that weren't even uh, without blemish. And he starts shutting it down. He starts driving people out. He starts flipping over tables. If the fig tree was paused for concern, What are we to do about this? <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Uh, if someone came into our theater and drove some of us out and took away my microphone, which some of you might be thankful for, and then flipped over the communion table and took the elements and poured out the wine and stomped on the bread and shut us down from having a functional worship service, how do you think we would respond? Would we really have to listen to what this person has to say to us, or would we write it off? There's nothing tame about what Jesus is doing here. It's shocking. It's disruptive. He's driving out hundreds of people, and Matthew's account says, with a whip. This would have been offensive. So as Jesus enters the temple, his righteous anger, it overflows. It escalates. But what is wrong with this holy place? Look at verse 17. Is it not written? Jesus quotes scripture. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. With this saying Jesus is combining uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. First, Isaiah, uh, he prophesied about all the world, foreigners and visitors, outsiders <coughs> being uh, drawn in to the temple. And this would be the day when God's holy mountain, his holy temple, would be the highest mountain in all the earth. And in Isaiah 56:7, here's what God says. I'll bring them, the foreigners, to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, God envisions his temple ultimately being a house for all peoples, a place above all being known for prayer. But Jeremiah, on the other hand, laments over the state of what the temple is and what it became. Look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder? Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has the house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? (coughs) So what is the point? With Isaiah, oh, thank you, Michelle. I got a servant heart right here. What is the point? With Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus shows us what the temple was meant to be and what the temple became. Rather than a house that welcomed all people and showed them the ways of the one true living God, it became a place of restricted access. Rather than praying for the nations, the prayers were focused on Israel alone. Rather than a place of purity and devotion to God, it became become a place of swindling, oppressive business practices, corrupt, faithless, a den of robbers. And so like the fig tree, Jesus comes to the temple looking for fruit. He comes to the temple expecting it to be a source of blessing for all the world. But what does he find? No fruit, no blessing. Barriers erected. It's become rotten to the core. The son of God stands in his father's house and he's angry about what it's become. Imagine with me, if you can, that you own a home. I know this is crazy. Imagine that you own a home and you lease it out and you return. And not only do the tenants not recognize you, They've opened up a business in your residence, a business in your name. And not only is that scandalous enough, they have opened a brothel with your name on the door. Imagine the anger you might feel in that scenario. Jesus, he stands in the temple and he says, you've made a horrid mess of it. You've missed it entirely. You're meant to be a light shining in the midst of the world. But instead, this house is a den of filth. But Jesus isn't just serving an eviction notice. He's stopping the temple from functioning altogether. He's tearing the whole thing down. And there's nothing safe about what Jesus is doing here. Try to imagine going into the Dome of the Rock, which now sits where the temple used to be, or any holy shrine and shutting down its operations. Try to imagine going to uh, St. Peter's in Vatican City and shutting it down, or going to Yankee Stadium and shutting down the stadium. You might instigate a riot. And at the very least, some of the more zealous would seek to do you harm, which is what happens. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. See, this was the tipping point. Once Jesus touches the temple, this is when it becomes too much for them. But before we write off these religious leaders of just being too zealous. Let's try to understand where they're coming from. Jesus is attacking their deepest held beliefs and values. And they're afraid because they see that they're losing their grip and power in society. As Mark says, the crowds are astonished with Jesus. And so we see that the scribes and the high priests had misused the temple to establish their status and power and control in society. Now, you might not take the same offense, thinking, you might even think, hey, it's great that Jesus shut down organized religion. Organized religion is no good. (coughs) But don't be mistaken. We all have a temple. We all have a temple, and we're just as religious about our own temples. Picture these places with me. Close your eyes. It's okay. It won't get too weird. The mountains. The ocean. The gym. The seawall. The mall. The pub. The stadium. The field. The rink. The race. The theater. The bank. The studio. The campus. The classroom. The bedroom. The mirror. The internet. Did one of these places stand out to you? If it did, hold on to that. What's at the center of that place for you? When you go to that place, what is at its center? Your body? Your escape? Sex? Your image? Your resume? Your portfolio? And when you go to that place or space... What are you seeking? What are you doing? Do you go to feel a sense of freedom and strength or confidence? Are you trying to establish your status, your name, or your beauty? Do you go with hope that your shortcomings might be overcome and hope that your desire for satisfaction might be met, your longing for purpose fulfilled? And what do you give to this place? Is it a proportional amount of time, money, energy, love, passion? Do you sacrifice your health and your family and your your friends even in the amount that you give to this place? And if this place crumbled, if it fell apart, if you could never go there again, would you be okay? If God tore it down, would it be for your good? And do you start to feel a little bit afraid at the thought of losing whatever is at the center of this space, what you're trying to gain there? Then that place is your temple. And you're just as religious about it. You can open your eyes. We can empathize with the chief priests and scribes. So as Jesus shuts down the temple, we have to understand that he's also shutting down our own little temples too. Because in this act, Jesus is shutting down anything that uh, constructs walls and barriers that inhibits people from coming into the presence of God. So he does this, and then evening comes. And Jesus and his disciples, they go out of the city, and Mark continues in verses 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Another great observation from Captain Obvious. But do you remember the parable of the sower in chapter 4? It was a long time ago, I know. Some of the seeds sprout quickly, but wither because they had no root. It's the same language here. It's Mark, Mark's way of saying, God has sown his word in the temple, but it's withered. There will be no harvest. It is not good soil. <coughs> Like the fig tree out of season, the temple is leaving God's people hungry. And so the fig tree, back in the center of attention, Jesus replies to Peter, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This brings us to our last image, moving mountains. Let me ask you, when's the last time you moved a mountain? Have you ever physically thrown a mountain into the sea? Do you receive everything that you ask for in prayer? If these are the uh, baselines of faith, we're all in trouble. But let's not lose sight of the horizon. Jesus actually says, whoever says to this mountain, this is an object lesson in Mark. The temple mount is in the horizon. It's in the distance. He's talking about the temple. And just as he cursed the fig tree and it withered, Jesus is saying, I will cast this temple into the sea. I will tear it down brick by brick. And it'll be done for Jesus because whatever he asks for, he receives. Because Jesus and Jesus alone has the faith to do it. And so Jesus, in saying to the disciples, have faith in God. (coughs) <coughs> he's, he's reminding them, I'm so sorry about this cold, uh, that faith can't be in ourselves or in our temples or even in our own faith and ability to pray. Our faith must be in God and his son, the one who can cast mountains into the sea. And he does it. He does it. Later in Mark's gospel, just a couple chapters, Jesus will be arrested and tried And in the Jewish court, his critics recount, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days, I will build another not made with hands. And guess what? In 70 AD, the temple does fall. But to make way for something better, a temple not made with hands, Jesus moves the mountains that impede us from coming into the presence of God. And as he draws into Jerusalem, as he draws closer to the cross, his first order of business is the temple. Because the temple is just a shadow of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fulfill its purpose and bring about better atonement and better access to God. (coughs) Jesus says, I will destroy this temple, this building of brick and stone, which erects barriers and walls, this temple that discriminated and inhibited access to God, this temple that inhibited access to women and foreigners, the temple which saved the most intimate space of God for one person alone. I will destroy this temple, which could only offer limited atonement and never fully deal with sins. I will destroy this temple and build another but not with human hands. I will build a new temple. And this new temple, it won't have any walls or boundaries or restricted access. It'll be open to any ethnicity, any gender, any person whatsoever. Every single person will have access into the most intimate presence of God, the Holy of Holies. You don't have to be good enough or strong enough or pure enough or beautiful enough or holy enough or pray well enough to come into this temple. Because this temple will offer better atonement and better forgiveness, not just once a year, but once and for all time. And this temple, it is more beautiful than brick and stone and any artistry and architecture. This temple will truly be a house of prayer for the nations. It will be the highest mountain lifted up so that every nation and every tribe and every person can be welcomed into the presence of God. Well, where do we find this temple? It's the body of Jesus. Jesus says, destroy this temple. He's ultimately talking about his body. He says, destroy this temple and I'll move the mountain of sin which separated you from God. I'll give myself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Destroy this temple. And in three days, three days I'll be buried. And in three days I will build another temple made without hands, three days in the grave, and then his resurrected life burst forth from the grave. This is the new temple of God. And from the cross, Jesus prayed the inaugural prayer of the new temple, fulfilling all the old temple was made to be. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. And we know whatever Jesus asked for, he receives. So we can take it to the bank You see, you might be worried about the effectiveness of your prayer. I'm often worried about my own. But if you pray this one, if you pray and ask for forgiveness, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, with a contrite and repentant heart, God will forgive you because the prayer has already been prayed for us by Jesus, which means it is answered. You can be forgiven. If you pray that prayer, it is done. Because Christ already prayed for us. Because he's moved mountains to be with us. That's our big idea this morning. Jesus has moved mountains to be with us. And so have faith in God. Because we can't move mountains. We can't build the right temples. Our hands can't do it, but Jesus can. (coughs) Jesus, he has come to move mountains. He moved the temple. So that you can come out of your temple, whatever it may be. And come into the presence of the living God. Because there, there is abundance. And in his presence, as the Hebrews would say, the fig tree blossoms. The fig tree blossoms. You won't go hungry. You'll be satisfied in his presence. Because there's abundance and there is life and there is goodness. One last thing. And listen up. Because this really matters. The church is not a building. It's people. And Scripture calls us the temple of God. Scripture calls us the place in which the Spirit of God dwells fully. We are the temple of God because His Spirit is with us. So I want to ask us as the temple of God, what will we be known for? Here are the two things on Jesus' heart that I think require no explanation. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Whenever you stand praying, forgive.